0: Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. Has there ever been a more important time for the church to answer that question? Who do you say that I am? Not who am I, not who do the scriptures say that I am, but you, you, my disciples, you, my followers, who do you say that I am? Some of us say that Jesus is the one who cares about the poor and the vulnerable. Some of us say that Jesus is the one who welcomes outcasts and sinners back into God's fold. Some of us say that Jesus is the one who protects the unborn. And some of us say that Jesus is the one who protects the women whose bodies have become a political battleground. Some of us say that Jesus is the one who promotes liberty and freedom and self-determination. And some of us say that he is the one who demands sacrifice and selflessness and surrender. Some of us say he's the one who came to make his followers rich beyond measure And some of us say he's the one who teaches them to embrace a life of destitute poverty. Who among us gets to decide who Jesus really is? We all claim to be Christians. We claim to be his followers, his disciples. In our various churches, we read the same Bible, we pray to the same God, but we talk about Jesus in radically different ways. We make him the centerpiece of competing platforms and conflicting lifestyles. As Christians, all of us call Jesus Savior, Lord, Christ, Messiah. But do any of us remember what any of that is supposed to mean? By the time we get to Mark chapter 8, today's gospel lesson, Mark and the reader have been asking that question, who is Jesus, really, for a long time? In the very first verse of this gospel account, Mark lets us know that this is the good news of Jesus the Christ. But except for that little editorial introduction, we've had no answer to that question throughout the gospel. In chapter 1, you might remember the demons recognized Jesus as the Holy One of God, but Jesus prevented them from explaining who he was to anybody else. In Mark chapter 4, when Jesus stills the storm, the disciples wonder aloud, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? But no answer is given then. Not long ago in church, we read from Mark chapter 6 when those in his hometown who knew Mary, his mother, and his siblings, we hear how confused and how upset they were when this man whom they knew so well preached with this unfamiliar power and authority. So far in this gospel account, every miracle, every teaching, every encounter has been about showing the reader, showing the world who Jesus really is. And finally, when we get to the end of Mark chapter eight, as things are beginning to become clear to us and to disciples, Jesus decides that this is the time for us to decide for ourselves what the answer to the question is, who is Jesus? Who do the people say that I am? He asks the disciples first. And they say, Well, Moses or Elijah or another of the prophets? And then, surely after that meaningful pause, he looked at them and said, What about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter gives the answer You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, he says. It's the first time we've had an answer. We've been waiting to hear that word from the first verse of the gospel. It's the first time anyone has acknowledged who Jesus really is. But as it turns out, and as our continued confusion over who Jesus really is reveals to us, calling Jesus the Messiah is only half of the work of faith. The other half the half we are still left to do is to figure out what Messiah means and what it means for us to use that term to call Jesus. As non-Jewish Christians, we typically use the Greek version, Christ, of that Semitic word Messiah, but they mean the same thing, they both mean anointed. To call Jesus Messiah or Christ means to call him the anointed one of God, the one whom God had chosen and equipped to do whatever work God had given him to do. But what is that work? Well, to Peter, it seems, Messiah evoked a connection with the other great Messiah mentioned in the Bible, David, the great and lauded king who had reigned over God's people at the pinnacle of their prosperity. Messiah must have meant that kind of king. And there are several first century Jewish texts that let us know that lots of Jesus' contemporaries expected God to send a Messiah to help them defeat the Romans and reclaim the Davidic throne. But in the exchange that follows, when we hear what Jesus and Peter have to say to each other, we discover that what Peter and what we so often expect when we hear that word Messiah isn't exactly right after all. As soon as Peter names Jesus Messiah, Jesus changes the game again. Jesus takes the word that Peter has used and says to the disciples, don't tell anybody. And then he begins to substitute another term for himself, a competing term, if you will, the term Son of Man. Messiah had a pretty clear expectation in that day, but Son of Man is a confusing title, one that's less clear, but perhaps no less significant. In first century Judaism, when someone heard Son of Man, they thought about not the king who came to claim the earthly throne, but that great and ultimate figure who one day would come and vindicate God's people. In this story, we see the same debate we're having among ourselves. Peter expected Jesus to come and claim that throne and to rule in power here and now, But what Jesus had in mind, what Jesus had been anointed to do was to usher in that reign that will only be complete in those last days. We get a sense of that in how Jesus describes for Peter and for the disciples and for the whole crowd, for us, the nature of his messianic ministry. The Son of Man, he said, must undergo great suffering. And be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And be killed and after three days rise again. That's not the Messiah Peter was looking for. And it's not the Messiah or Christ we hear Christians talking about most of the time. Jesus suffered and died and was raised from the dead, not so that he and his followers could seize earthly power and rule in glory here and now. He gave himself up to death and God raised him from the dead so that those who follow him, even to the point of suffering and death, might be raised to the new life of God's perfect reign. Christians tend to agree that Jesus is the one who has opened up for us the way to eternal life, but we tend to forget that we cannot enter that life or that reign until we have suffered and died with Jesus. When Peter heard Jesus describe his suffering and death, the disciple took the master aside and rebuked him as if to swap those roles together. All too often, we Christians do the very same thing. We rebuke Jesus every time we tell him, no, Lord, not your way, but my way, thank you very much. When Jesus tells us that we must deny ourselves, that we must take up our cross, that we must lose our life in order to save it, we pull him aside and say, not today, Jesus. I don't want to give up my life. I don't want to deny myself my wants, my needs, my family, my body, my freedom. I don't want to carry that cross. It's too hard and too heavy and too frightening, and it is. And what does Jesus say to us? Stop setting your minds on earthly things and see the divine things I have come to show you and to teach you. Get behind me. Satan. To accept the beam of that cross upon our shoulders and to walk the heavy laden path of self denial and suffering is to accept for ourselves the same disgrace that was heaped upon Jesus. To be his follower costs us dearly in this life. You cannot walk the way of God's anointed, of Christ, and escape. That same shame and rejection and denial. And yet, when we avoid that path, when we are ashamed of that teaching, when the Son of Man comes, he is ashamed of us as well. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. In the end, of course, Peter is right. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. But if we are going to call Jesus our Christ, our Messiah, then we must accept for ourselves the pattern that he has given us. We must pray that the Holy Spirit will give us strength, not to win the battles in front of us, but to lose them with humility and dignity. We must ask God to put to death within us that tendency to seek our own needs instead of the needs of others. When it comes to claiming Jesus for our side and using him for our agenda, it is those who do so who fail to understand what Jesus' messiahship is all about. We must instead ask God to grant us wisdom to set our minds not on human things but on divine things, that we might even find the strength to give up our lives. That is how we save them. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.